Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. I'm Jean Case, co-founder and CEO of the Case Foundation and chairman of the National Geographic Society. My advice to women who want to achieve anything extraordinary is to take risks, to really recognize that it takes a certain amount of fearlessness to achieve great things. It was actually a really comfortable, secure career path I was on at GE that I put at risk to go to the startup down the street that was to become AOL. And at the time, my friends, everybody thought I was crazy. I was on this great trajectory. But I knew it would take a leap like that to really, you know, have the chance to have a rocket ship ride, as Sheryl Sandberg would say. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Jean Case is CEO of the Case Foundation, chairman of the board of National Geographic, a philanthropist, and a tech industry leader. As a senior executive at America Online, Jean helped lead AOL to become a household utility. In 1997, she, along with her husband Steve Case, created the Case Foundation, which joins entrepreneurship and technology to drive innovation and make a difference. Jean discusses how she leveraged her success in the private tech sector into online platforms for social good and what drives her to want to keep changing the worlds of technology and philanthropy. So, Jean, you were raised by a single mom as one of four kids. What did you learn from your mom? Oh, my gosh. I think most of what I know today, I give credit to my mom one way or another. But mainly it was perseverance. She was a single mom raising four kids. She worked as a waitress. Things were a little challenging, but she woke up every day with a smile and with new ideas for things we could do. When you were a girl watching your mom struggle, work hard, did you ever imagine you'd be a billionaire? Well, I wouldn't put it in those terms, but my mom really encouraged me to aim high and to achieve great things. And she believed in me so strongly and made that clear on a routine basis. So to be honest with you, I think if I hadn't at least tried to do something that she would be proud of, I wouldn't have been true to her. Did she see your success? She did, yes. We traveled the world together. Uh, I lost my mom about nine years ago, but she watched the sort of write-up of AOL and all that that brought. She was able to know her grandchildren really well, and it turned out great. How do you handle coming from modest upbringings to having more money than you could probably spend in a lifetime? You know, I'm really grateful. I actually wouldn't want resources if I hadn't started life actually being a recipient of philanthropy. You know, I went to a private school and I benefited from a full scholarship because of our economic situation. And it really gave me insights to many things that I then worked to apply or to try to address through my life. So what kind of insights did it give you? Sure. Well, it put in me a real uh, fierce interest in empowering others and to use my resources to empower others. It also put in me a fierce desire to have financial security because living without it was so challenging. And that sounds like a small thing, but that's the only reason today that I can then turn around and use my resources for impact because that was a priority for me. 
Do you have that security now? I mean, I know probably on paper, sure, but I, I've met several people <laughs> who are very successful who, some of them are billionaires, who still feel insecure about money. Yeah, I wouldn't say I feel insecure, but I would say I never, you know, check the box. I never say it's done and I'm secure forever. I think I'm always a little paranoid because of my upbringing. But again, I think that's a really good thing. It brings a lot of rigor to how I look at my finances, how I look at my investments, etc. And, you know, probably a funny thing that that you would see is even my pantry is a little bit oversupplied just because when you grow up without it, you're never entirely sure it's there to stay. So in terms of that rigor, does that how does that affect your spending? So it's funny because, you know, a lot of people, a lot of um, peers of mine or other women who have achieved success or have wealth make different decisions about how they spend their money. I really like finding a good deal. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just am not comfortable with spending huge amounts of money on material things. That being said, we enjoy a very comfortable, privileged life. But um, in small ways, particularly, I look to be economical. Your children have had a very different upbringing from you, generally speaking, when it comes to access and resources. So I'm wondering, did you ever worry about spoiling them? Oh, we really did. Yes, it was a it was a major sort of uh, consideration as we were raising our children. And I think what I knew in my heart was... You have to put a good foundation in kids and then count on that to take them through. And today, we couldn't feel better about the five kids in our family. They have the same desire to use their resources to make a difference. They don't have many resources today because they're all kind of starting out in their careers. But we're very proud of the work ethic that they have and the humility and empathy that they have for others. How did you teach that? You would probably have to ask them that. I mean, it was an important priority for us in every teachable moment to try to, you know, go to helping them understand what other experience, taking them out in the world and letting them see what others experience. I think they would tell you they did not grow up in a bubble, and that was helpful. And particularly, you know, with my mom, she was still around as they were being raised, and she made sure they never got, you know, too big for their britches, <laughs> she would say. You and Steve both had children from prior marriages before you married. What's your advice for women who are trying to blend families? Yeah, I think blending families is challenging for anyone. But I think if you put the focus on, you know, your love and your interest in bringing the best to the family situation, kids see authenticity. They know if the love is really there, even if from time to time there may be other issues that come into their mind as it relates to the dynamics of a stepfamily. You got in on the very early days of the Internet. What's your advice to other women who want to get in on the ground floor of the opportunity? Well, quite frankly, my advice to women who want to achieve anything extraordinary is to take risks, to really recognize that it takes a certain amount of fearlessness to achieve great things. I like to say nothing great comes from the comfort zone. So like in my own past, it was actually a really comfortable, secure career path I was on at GE that I put at risk to go to the startup down the street that was to become AOL. And at the time, my friends, everybody thought I was crazy. I was on this great trajectory. Maybe many people would say that was crazy. But I knew it would take a leap like that to really, you know, have the chance to have a rocket ship ride, as Sheryl Sandberg would say. <laughs> How did you get that courage, especially when you had all the other voices telling you, don't do this, that's crazy? Well, I want to hearken back to my upbringing. You know, I think what I learned is no matter what adversity you face, you can get through. So I probably had 
less fear of the worst case scenario in some senses because I I knew I could make it through if things got tough. Interesting. You speak openly about the need for people to fail in order to achieve big success. How come? Well, again, it's another lesson my life has has, uh, taught me. But more importantly, we've studied this at the Case Foundation. We did a long-term study of uh, causes, movements, products, companies that really break through into the extraordinary. And there are a few principles they have in common. One of them I just mentioned, which is risk-taking. But the other is failure. You know, some of the greatest things come out of failure. And I like to quote Albert Einstein, who says, failure is success success in progress. And the fact of the matter is it's hard to find success if you haven't failed and learned some hard lessons. And I often say, like in investing, I'd rather invest in an entrepreneur that's had a few failures than an entrepreneur who's on the first start. Some folks say the Time Warner AOL merger was one of the greatest business failures in history. What do you say to those people? You know, I, I think it's a it's a complicated mix of things. Obviously, we would have loved for that story to have ended differently. I think it was the right idea, perhaps at the wrong time and with the wrong team. What's the biggest lesson you learned from that experience? The importance of timing and team and talent and, and what you try to take forward. You transition from business business to philanthropy. What's your advice to women who want to make a career switch? You know, I've actually worked in all the sectors because I started my career in Washington working for President Reagan. And it was actually out of a failure that took me over to the tech sector. And of course, now I'm in philanthropy. I think crossing sectors is going to become much more common. You know, the world I grew up in, we were kind of taught to make a choice. Did you want to be in business? Did you want to be a social worker? Might might you work for the government, et cetera? That's gone now. This next generation just wants to change the world. And they're not really married to just one sector to do that necessarily. In the same way we're going to see them hold many jobs, I think we'll see them cross many sectors. And I think it's a great thing. I think it will widen their aperture and their perspective as they try to address challenges and create opportunities. Do you think people are more accepting of that now? I do. I think it's becoming, it's still early days, but I think we're beginning to see that as more of a norm. And for the people who don't see that so much as a norm, these young people who are trying to get older people to buy into this idea of switching around, what's your advice for them? How do they get the older people or that maybe they're not necessarily older, they just have a different mindset. How do you get them to buy into that? Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you have to turn off voices just the same way I had to turn off voices who were telling me not to leave GE. And it takes a certain amount of wisdom, which sometimes when you're young, you you feel and even, you know, no matter where you are in life, you're questioning what's wise and what's not. But one thing we do see with this generation is they're modeling behaviors that the generations ahead of them are looking at and being inspired by. So, you know, I think that This is another one of those cases where they'll be out there and they'll demonstrate the way. You know, our work in impact investing, for instance, one of the things that's really driving that movement with impact investments being investments that provide both a financial and a social return, that whole movement is really being driven by women and the next generation because they just don't see the world the same way. They don't think the only thing that matters is a financial return. Field of impact investing, as you mentioned, is is sort of a hot thing. It's been sort of a hot thing for a while. I know some women have said, yeah, it sounds interesting, but it just seems so broad. I don't mm-hmm. even know where to start. Right. What do you say to that? It is too broad. I think there's like nomenclature issues or terminology issues that we have with with impact investing. But as I said, we define it as any investment that has both a financial and a social return. But more importantly, we say for it to be an impact investment, three things must be present. Intention, measurement, and transparency. Intention of what is the impact, you know, that is trying to be created here or made. Then what is the measurement of that impact so that you know the differences there. And then being transparent with the stakeholders around these are the results. 
How do you find opportunities? So, you know, there's a growing body. It is still very early days, and there are still a limited number of wealth advisors who understand impact investing. If you look, for instance, Goldman bought Imprint Capital because I think they thought it was easier to buy the expertise than grow it internally. So it's still early days for wealth advisors, but there are impact advisors out there. You know, I would just, I don't want to get into the game of advising specific ones, but if you want to find them, you you can find a way. How do you handle all the requests you get to give to charity? You know, I think that we had to decide what we were for so that I could feel confident saying no when people ask me for things. When we first started the Case Foundation, I would say the spotlight was kind of white hot on AOL at that time. And so on any given day, we could have hundreds and hundreds of requests come through. And it truly was overwhelming. So I basically said, hold the phones. We're not doing anything until we figure out what we're for. And then I can confidently say to people, great idea. I wish you success, but that's not in our wheelhouse. And learning how to say no, is that is that tough? It's really tough. I think it's one of the hardest skills in philanthropy. And I also think, you know, this term mission creep is, you know, you start with one thing, and this often happens to nonprofits. You start with one focus, and then somebody says, yeah, but couldn't you do this or couldn't you do that? And you, and you start spreading yourself to the point where you're no longer, you know, white hot focused on the thing you really wanted to have impact on. We didn't want that to happen to us. So we basically developed a guideline that said we don't accept unsolicited grant proposals. And the reason for that is we do business planning at the Case Foundation and we determine strategically what the areas are that we're going to fund because those will be the areas that we've deemed we can make a unique difference in. What motivates you to give? Uh, Empowering others, making the world a better place, no question about it. And what's the secret for philanthropy? who want to give to charity, they want to give back, but they don't want to weaken the people that they're helping. Yeah, well, we have some work that we started over a decade ago called Citizens at the Center. And the first thing that I would say is if you want to help someone, you really need to hear from the people you think you're going to help before you devise a plan. And I know that sounds like a duh thing, but, you know, Too often in my early days in philanthropy, I would look around the table and the very groups that we were trying to serve or individuals we were trying to serve didn't have a voice in the solutions that we were bringing forward. And so we did a paper, gosh, it might even be 15 years ago now, in which we kind of did a study of, well, how do you have a more citizen-based focus where the people you're trying to serve help devise the solutions you're bringing to them? And I think if you engage them in your solutions, you don't have to worry about hurting them. How can you sign the giving pledge? Well, it was always our intent to use the vast majority of our wealth to benefit others. So it wasn't a decision we made when we signed the giving pledge. We just went public with that, with the giving pledge. And, you know, part of the reason was, and we really struggled with the whole idea of going public with a statement like that. It felt in some ways self-congratulatory, and we were really concerned that it would look like that. But at the end of the day, the reason we're deeply engaged in that work is because it's a really powerful network where we can learn together on what works to benefit others and to have impact. So it really is a close-knit network. We learn together. We try now to take many of the resources that we share with each other out to the public as well so they can benefit from them. So we really saw that that would be something that could perhaps help all of us just be better and smarter.
What's one thing you've learned from the group? Probably just the power of convening that, you know, and and I would say that's probably even a top lesson in our 20 years at the Case Foundation, that there really is power when you just get people together to share stories, share lessons. Of course, we always ask for failure stories (laughs) with the idea that, look, if you fail, it's hard for you, but it's actually a good thing if you tell that story and it can, you know, maybe mean that the next person starts a little ahead of the game and won't encounter the same things. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Spend time with Alexa? Then make what's news part of your flash briefing on the Amazon Echo, the Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. You're committed to helping entrepreneurs. How can women get more venture capital Mm. money for their startups? Well, we're certainly doing all we can about it. (laughs) We're really trying to build a really big tent. There have been others working on it as well. So let's just put the data on the table. PitchBook just said last week that 2% of venture capital went to women last year. 2%, 98% 2%, 98% went to men. Only 1% went to African-American founders. And 78% of all venture capital went to just three places in the United States, New York, Massachusetts, and California. You know, the first lesson of finance is diversify. But as a nation, we're not really diversifying where we're sending that jet fuel that fuels young companies. We're really, it's mostly going to elites on the coasts in a few places. Most of the men nearly all of them white. And that means we're going to limit our economic opportunity as a nation. Think about the innovations that someone who's lived a different problem might come up with. And there are just certain things, say ag tech, for instance, which is agricultural technology. I really don't think the best ideas are going to come from San Francisco. They're probably going to come from places like Kansas and you know Nebraska, where they have lived real issues and have some idea about how to solve them. You've said you don't think anyone has purposely left women out of the venture capital loop. However, some people would disagree and say it's very much an old boys club. What do you say to them? So I think both could be true. I think there is unintentional harm that can be done. And I think maybe some people feel like the old boys club is, you know, intentional. I don't. And the reason I don't, and my my strong view on this, is because I've spent the last couple of years working on this. And what I find is when you bring the data to people, when you bring the data to those that are, you know, accused of being in an old boys club, they say, gosh, I didn't know. I just didn't realize. And in many cases, through time, we see them change their practices. So, you know, I think intentionality is really important. And I think what's been lacking is clear intention to make sure that we capture the brilliance of women the same way we've captured the brilliance of men across the nation and fund those ideas the way we fund the traditional ideas that have come forward out of venture capital. Some people might say, though, how could they not know? Don't they read the news? It's Yeah, so I'm not saying they didn't know. I'm just saying there's a difference between knowing and really focusing on it and coming to terms with your own role and how you can change it. And that's the business we're in. We're working with a lot of folks to say, you know, can we agree there's a powerful economic opportunity here? Yes, I believe there's a social justice opportunity, too. But in many cases, that's not going to move the needle where money is involved. What's going to move the needle where capital flows is, you know, a recognition that there's a terrific investment opportunity at hand. And I believe women represent that. I believe people of color represent that. 
What's the business case for investing in women-owned businesses? Well, there's a growing body of data that says women-led firms outperform their male counterparts. One venture capital firm, First Round Capital, peeled back the onion and found that their women-led investments far outpaced the the strictly male-led investments. So, and but that's just one. There's a growing body of data that we're reading every day, including, by the way, data that's saying more diverse teams outperform less diverse teams. So there's almost a business or economic imperative in my mind if you're managing capital or placing capital to recognize that there's growing data, that this is not just a smart, but maybe a smarter investment than the way you're investing today. You've given the career advice to start with the end in mind. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Well, you know, I think that it's important to have a true north and to self-analyze what that might be. And, and people sometimes say, wait, what's a true north? Well, for me, like the true north was empowering people. The reason that became so important is because as I faced, you know, like forks in the road or big decisions, I could always go back to what do I really care about? What am I really trying to achieve? That moment that I've talked about twice now, going from GE to AOL, I actually believed we could empower more people through design that AOL had versus what I was working on at GE. So having something where you know in your heart, it's deeper than a value even. It's really almost an end game that you want to be at and let that guide your decision making from the start to the finish. You also said people will only have as much confidence in you as you have in yourself. How so? Oh, gosh. You know, I remember I had this young, really gifted young man who worked for me, and he had to present at a company meeting. And, you know, I helped him get ready and everything. And, well, it just he was so nervous and so unsure of himself that it all fell apart. And I had to bring him into my office after and say, gosh, you know, I think the world of you, you're so talented. But unless you can find a way to reflect confidence, maybe even if you're not feeling feeling it fully inside, people aren't going to have confidence in you. You have to reflect confidence for people to feel confident in you. Now, there are exceptions. Your parents, your mentors will be there, you know, each step of the way. But in a professional setting, it's actually up to us to convey the confidence. And so how did he develop that? You know, he did over time. He really worked on it. And, you know, what I realized was it actually required training of my entire team. So we worked on it. I brought in some people to help do some speaking uh, training and things like that. And so I I have said, you know, you kind of have to treat that like a muscle that you work out. You have to have a workout plan for how am I going to get from here to there and being confident. How do we get more women interested in tech careers, especially since we know there's so much sexual harassment in tech? Well, you know, tech is empowering. And I think one thing that is really beautiful about women is that they care deeply about everything from others to our planet, okay? And there's no company out there anymore that isn't a tech company in one way or another. So the bottom line is, if you want to do really extraordinary things, if you want to change the world, you actually need technology. So I'm hoping more women will be undaunted by the terrible sort of environment that's been created in tech today, and we'll go forward. You know, we're working on a lot of things to try to make that environment better. And I do just want to say, you know, I grew up in tech, right? I mean, my first tech job was 1982. (laughs) I was 22 years old. It was not like it is today. This is a new thing that's taken hold. And a lot of us are talking about, so what changed? Because it seems to have changed somewhere in the last 10 to 20 years. The tech environment I went into 
was welcoming of women. I mean, I was an officer of the company when I was in my 20s, okay, and I was a female. But the tech environment today really has changed, and I, I think it'll be interesting to peel back that onion over time and try and figure out what went wrong. But meanwhile, we've got to try to get it right. What do you think might have gone wrong? I really don't know. I, there's there's just a lot of uh, a lot of conjecture out there about uh, what it might be. But I do think this sort of bubble effect that we talked about earlier, where capital just flows to one elite set, most of them young white men from elite schools, that's not helpful. I think that's part of what has helped create this bro culture. Really thrilled with a lot of you know business and product results, but we can probably do better if we change that. What in technology excites you right now? Um, you know, at the Case Foundation, we're always uh, playing around with new technologies to see how they can be applied for social good. I think artificial intelligence and VR can do some really powerful things for those that can't go to the front line of challenges but maybe can experience it, uh, you know, through a virtual experience. What we find is when people get closer to a problem or a challenge, they're much more likely than to want to be part of the solution or the opportunity that comes forward out of it. So, for instance, at South by Southwest last year, we just had a total VR week partnered with a bunch of folks that were doing VR films on, you know, social good things, everything from, you know, the health of our oceans to the refugee crisis. And it was amazing to see people literally, in some cases, they weren't all sad things, but in some cases cry just over how moved they were through the VR experience. Are you concerned about social media's role in civics today? I am. I'm both concerned and optimistic, but maybe I always will be. I mean, we had the, you know, the benefit of being part of the internet revolution. And here's how we saw it. We saw it as democratization of ideas, information, and communication. That is so powerful. You know, in that house I grew up in, I didn't have access to the great ideas of the world. I didn't have access to information so I could, you know, go deeper into something in those days. Anyone, including in the last mile of Africa today, can access great ideas. So I think, you know, as a pendulum swings, we were thinking we democratized and, you know, everyone kind of had a level playing field. But it turns out so much divisiveness has taken place, and we've got to figure our way back. Do you think we're going to see regulation? I do, and particularly after the Facebook news, you know, in the last week or so, I think that it's quite likely that we'll come up, hopefully, with a really responsible set of regulations that protect people's data but more importantly, hopefully, limits the opportunity for people to bring them false information or to over-curate what you see. What's your advice for women who want to change the world? Be fearless. <laughs> Time now for your secrets. I'm Jean Case, co-founder and CEO of the Case Foundation. My money secret is you can use your money to empower others. Be sure to check back every week for future episodes featuring designer Rebecca Minkoff and actress Sandra Bernhard. Hear from women industry leaders about their road to a successful career and their secrets to financial empowerment. Find us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite audio provider and tune in every week for all new episodes of the Wall Street Journal's Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com. Or on Twitter, use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.